Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 165th episode of the Truth Island podcast. In recent years, with the advance of science, it has become quite fashionable to diminish the role that free will plays in human affairs. Scientists and philosophers ranging from Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and Daniel Dennett believe that humans either have no free will or that free will is severely limited by our genetic predispositions. The writer Christopher Hitchin, when asked if people have free will, once comically responded, yes, I have free will. I have no choice but to have it. In some ways, this paradoxical answer carries a certain grain of truth to it. On one hand, few of us have the free will not to breathe, as it is something that kicks in the second we are born. The same can be said for food, discomfort, sexual desire, and many other involuntary impulses that we are automatically programmed to experience. While there are certainly baseline desires that come pre-installed in our operating system, there are many that are not. For example, is the need for money something that we have a biological urge to acquire, or is it something that is accumulated by socializing? Free will, like many things, runs along a spectrum, some behaviors such as breathing being 100% uncontrollable. However, some might argue that moral decision-making might be something that is squarely within the realm of our control. In his book, Free Will by Sam Harris, Harris makes the argument that the combination of both our genetics and environment essentially erodes anything resembling free will. For example, a child born into an unstable household with a genetic predisposition towards aggression might find themselves in prison for reasons well beyond their control. The issue of free will goes beyond mere philosophical conjecture as the issue of accountability is once again brought into the picture. This culminates in perhaps the most important question of all. Should society judge individuals based on their individual choices or simply acknowledge that everyone acts by forces that are beyond their control? Joining me in my search for willpower, I am once again joined by Kenny. So Kenny, are you a philosopher based on your DNA coding or does your free will guide you towards finding the truth? I'm not sure, Aaron, you tell me. (laughs) I was born this way, man. I was, <laughs> I was born into the dark, molded by it. <laughs> molded by it. Um, well, whether or not it's, I, I guess I, I would have to say that I, I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't know that I'm genetically dis, you know, predisposed towards this. Growing up, I never really cared for much questions or even school or knowledge or understanding. It was basically, I think, at the age of 19 or 20 that these things suddenly um, became important to me. Um, now, what, chicken or the egg? I'm not sure. Is it, is it somehow some, some gene was dormant in me and all of a sudden you know, came to life? Or life throwing me into a situation where um, I had to start asking those questions? And then one might say, okay, well, if life threw you into those situations, then it's not really necessarily your free will. But yes, it, it's, it's not, because for the most part, that's how life is. A lot of the things around us we can't control. What we can control is, I, I would say, our minds and our thoughts and, our, and our, the way we choose to, see that, choose to interact with the things around us. Um, so no, I don't believe that I was genetically disposed to it. I do believe that it just it, it occurred um, when certain criteria was met were met around me. 
Yeah, the, no, what, what you're saying actually reminds me of a podcast I did a while ago on curiosity. And a question that I don't think we uh, arrived at an answer to this is why certain people are curious about different things. You know, why is someone really curious about math? Why is someone really curious about history or philosophy or so forth? I have a feeling, and, and I, you know, I'm going to lean just, just, on the, just with this particular issue a little bit on the uh, scientist side of the spectrum. I do have a theory that we are drawn to things that we are exceptionally good at. Because like, if you look at people who are good at basketball, for example, well, they probably like that sport because they're really tall and they're really good at it. I'll be honest, I like history and philosophy because I'm very good at it, you know, and, and we're not as drawn to things that we are weak at, right? We like, we like to, as Jordan Peterson would say, we like to find spheres of influence where we can climb to the top of the dominance hierarchy. So if you're good at something, you're going to want to do more of it because you like the social adulation and esteem that comes from that. Whereas if you're bad at something, uh, then you're not going to want to be doing those things. So I, I, I do feel like we do have a choice. Like I obviously make a choice to open up a book and read a philosophy book. But I do, I do see like the scientific side to this that like, maybe I'm just really good at this, this exercise, whereas things I'm not good at, I avoid. Well, people, people tend, actually naturally do tend to gravitate towards things they're good at. I think that makes sense. A friend of mine says that they, we, we return to the things we get applauded in and we walk away from the things we've been ridiculed at or, or the things we've been, we've been oh, less applauded in, you know? So, um, but to say that a person, to say that people don't go into situ- go into situations and uh, and subjects that are contrary to their natural disposition, I, I think is I don't think I don't think that's true, because for example, reading um, was never really a fun thing for me, and um, it was it was it was a chugging along of a situation to you know to get into the place where. It became very, uh, how you say, very natural or very uh, acceptable to read a book and enjoy it. So, because that, that that kind of mind, you know, if you're not good at if you're not good at something, you know, it, to say that it makes sense for you to leave it, well, it's it's kind of bollocks because that's how you get good at a thing by doing it. Some things you're naturally good at because some either genetic or physical traits, and that helps you advance in it quicker than others. Um, others for other subjects or other situations, you have to work really hard at it. But I guess that's where your free will now becomes more, you know, more uh, more exercised. It's because you don't. Every natural thing in you is telling you, no, this is you should not or you cannot achieve this. But you choose, in spite of that, to continue, and uh, eventually it pays out. And you never, you may never be the greatest in that subject but you become decent enough to where you're comfortable with it. Okay, I wanna run a a hypothetical scenario by you. And I know that my hypotheticals are laboratory uh, sterilized conditions, but hear me out on this one, okay? Let's say you have a, uh, a developing nation, right? And you have one of the poorest slums in that developing nation. And let's say the only way uh, that someone from one of these slum neighborhoods is able to work their way up 
is by being brilliant at math or being a brilliant engineer or computer scientist. So all the kids are like, yes, I'm, I'm going to become a computer scientist. I'm going to become an engineer. I'm going to become a doctor. I'm going to like take that STEM pathway and I'm going to make something of myself and I'm going to earn my way out of this. Okay. And let's just pretend now this is laboratory conditions here. 100% of those kids are motivated. They're like 100% gun ho They're all doing their homework, but the university in this country can only accept an X amount of applicants. Let's say it's a thousand applicants from that particular city. Each of them tries, each of them works just as hard as the other, but just some of them are just really naturally fast and just naturally get it really quickly and they get higher grades and they just progress through the ranks a lot quicker and they get into the selective university. One of them actually goes to become mayor of his whole town and then president. And then he's like, well, I built my way up from the slums and you can too. And it, it sounds like, wow, now that's some free will. And we're like, yes, free will. And it's, it feels good because you have a, a figure that worked from the slums and then worked their way up to being mayor or president of the country. Whereas Sam Harris, and I think the scientist would say, well, that guy who was born in the slums and worked his way to be mayor or president, he did have a proclivity for math and for engineering, which allowed him to get a high paying job and then become CEO and then do this, that, and the other thing. Whereas there were people in that same village who worked just as hard, but they didn't have that DNA advantage. So as I said, like, I think that, again, what I'm describing is perfect laboratory settings. But I do think there is some truth in that, that like, you know, your situation in life does matter, but also some, some DNA traits in this economy of ours are more favorable than others. And that can, you know, that could be the difference between calling yourself a failure or a success story. Do you, do you think there's any truth in that? Yeah, I think there's some truth in that. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it, it happens, it, ha it happens in our, in our world. I don't, I don't think that's a far-fetched example at all. So it, the question now becomes, okay, but how is that something that, that shows that free will isn't necessarily free? And we're not really as, you know, uh, um, we're not really as, well, free as we think we are in our, in, our, in, our, in our expression of will. Well, not necessarily, because that's, all of life is like this. This is, this is free will within, within, within natural constraints. You may choose to pick up the book. That's your free will. You have chosen to pick up the book. Now, your natural proclivities and your natural gifts or um, disadvantages may make it that that book, instead of taking you an hour to read, takes you about three months to read. But it's your choice to pick up the book. But you're constrained by you're constrained by your DNA and your your, your tendencies, your natural tendencies and proclivities and your environments and so forth. So. The external, the external pressures don't necessarily um, say that free will does not exist. It just says that free will exists, but it exists in, a, in planes that are solid, that, are, that we have to mold ourselves into or that we have to find a way to navigate around. Now, I can be free all I want. I can, I can want to go to a friend's house, but if there's a construction zone there, I, I enter the car, I chose to go there, but if there's a construction zone blocking me from his area, I'm not gonna get through. At least I could still get through depending on how, you know, how willing I am to uh, find other routes. But the fact is that there's a, there's a blockage in front of me and that blockage has nothing, to, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily affect my choice. My choice is still where I am. I, I came here, I came to the blockage because of my choice, but the blockage is telling me that I can't go any further 
based on certain constraints. So it's not so much that, that's why free will, because if I had free will, freedom to express one's will, if I wanted to be a cow, I couldn't be a cow. That's, that's my, if I, my will was to be the next, you know, not even the next, Bruce Lee himself, I couldn't magically transform myself into Bruce Lee. So free will is, when we say that, when we say that, we're actually a little bit misleading because it's not so much free will as it is freedom of choice, freedom to choose. Because we can't will everything and anything we want. It's not like the secret where you say you manifest, you know, your your greatest desires by thinking about it and farting farting in a certain frequency. You, you so we we're not we're not we're not god be, godlike beings. We're, we're, we have some agency and that agency, that, 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 that agency we have is choice and not necessarily the ability to, um, to bend reality. I, I actually love the phrase that you just coined, um, free will within natural limits. I think that's an ex- that's, that's really a brilliant phrase actually. And I think that's, that's a fair compromise that everyone in that slum village, for example, is using their free will to open up the math textbook, right? So they've all, and and again, you could be brilliant in math, but you could use your free will to, to not open up that math textbook. And so we all have the free will to do something or not do something. The natural limit is your is how well you are at something based on your natural aptitude, which is something that we could say is beyond your control. In this case, this would be mathematical ability, or if it's sports, your height, your physical strength, et cetera, you know, just things that just beyond your control. So this kind the reason we ask this question is because accountability obviously ties into this, right? So accountability kind of sneaks in the door Whereas the free will advocates will say, hey, man, you know, you're a failure, you're poor uh, because you did not exercise your free will accordingly. Right. They'll be like, you just you didn't use your free will. Come on, man. You went to too many parties when you were in college and high school. Like, let's be real, man. There's some truth in that. There's absolutely truth in that. The non-free will people will go all the way to the opposite end of the spectrum and say, no, I was biologically predisposed to party too much. And we have to figure this out, right? Because these, these two sides don't seem to actually be talking to one another. We have like some people saying, well, you know, I got drunk at that party because I was predisposed to being drunk at that party, which I think is laughable and ridiculous. On the other hand, we can't call everyone that's down on their luck lazy. So help me, help me find like this golden compromise here. Well, well I think, I think that the, what you just said is, is key because, because people have, and they usually their, their responsibility is, uh, you know, um, and we, we don't talk about responsibility much anymore. We often talk more about our rights, but we have responsibility. And I think that's, it's important for people to take responsibility for their choices. Now, one might say, okay, well, what about the person who is, you know, from an alcoholic generation and then they are just naturally predisposed to really like the drink and not just like it, but, you know, it, 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 consumes, it consumes every aspect of their life. Well, fine, let's say that. So let's say that a person has a natural predisposition, you know, uh, a natural uh, predisposition to, to uh, to, to, in, to, to alcohol, large, or should I say an inordinate amount of alcohol consumption that ends up stifling their life. 
well, which is a real thing. I mean, you know, psych- thing. psychologists would say that if your parent, if you have at least one parent that was an alcoholic, it's more likely that you yourself will become an alcohol alcoholic. The question that also there's also a there's also like a sub question within that question of like, is it the environment of an alcoholic parent that predisposes you to drink, or is it actually encoded into your DNA? Let, let's say that it's that. Let's say that it is. It's it's the, it's the it's the hardest one to deal with. It's encoded into your DNA. Well, I have friends who believe this about who believe this about themselves. Their parents or their father or their their father or mother or both were alcoholics growing up, and till this day they don't drink. They've made the choice not to drink. Not that now they're not certain that they'd go crazy. They're not certain about that, but they don't even want to take that chance. And so they made a choice not to drink. And they're functioning adults because of their choice not to drink. Now, I'm saying what, what, what I'm saying here, I'm not saying that your DNA, let's just say that your DNA is in fact, you know, built to destroy you, right? Um, there are places where it's actually diseases and there's really very little you can do about that. Your parents have this, this disease and you have this disease and your kids will have this disease and so forth. Now, until modern medicine comes up to a place where we can tweak and change those things in the person's DNA or, you know, bring cures for those kinds of things. This, we're talking about an element that has to do with one, one's own action, one's own choice, choiceful action of bringing a bottle to their mouth. This is, this is something that a person can choose not to do. And I would say that that's, that's your responsibility. If you, if, if, if you say, if you think and believe that um, this natural disposition of yours is, that is a detriment to you and you think that it's, go, it's, not, it's going to be the cause of your failure, quote unquote failure, then if you can do something about it, which you can, right? That's a choice. That's where choice comes in. You can choose not to. If you can choose not to, then I would say that then you're already at, a, you're already at an advantage. Now, I think you make a really good distinction uh, with that alcoholic person, for example, who's saying I am never like I have a genetic predisposition to being an alcoholic, therefore, I'm never going to have a drink. What about the alcoholic that says, I don't even have the free will to make that choice not to drink at all? Like, it's just, it's my destiny. Like, do you believe that there's any kind of DNA that predestines you to becoming an alcoholic and you can't even you can't you don't even have the free will to avoid taking that very first drink or do you think that's kind of nonsense well i think i think unless the bottle unless the bottle is going to knock you out open your mouth and pour itself into you then no you absolutely don't do not have an act a, a destiny to um to drink alcohol right and so unless you're like tied down and someone like um <laughs> It's like it's like you're being tied down and poisoned or something like that. You're not going to do it. Yeah, I, I hear I hear what you're saying. That okay. So, but the other thing though, and here here's the deal about that though, is you would have to have done some very careful self examination before you made that decision. And I'll, and I'll give you an example. So let's say you're 14 years old. You're not that sophisticated. You don't know about like genetic predispositions, right? So what happens if you take your first sip of alcohol when you're 14 and you haven't learned about biology, you haven't learned about addiction, you haven't learned about any of these complicated things. It's easy to make that decision at 25 or something after you already know how addiction and predispositions work. What happens if you drink that first sip of alcohol at 13 or 14 or 15 and you just don't have that knowledge yet? 
Well, if you take, if you, if you, um, this is, first of all, this is why it's super important for, it's like, you know, you, you tell, you tell, you tell kids, you know, listen to your parents and all that bollocks. Um, <laughs> and they think, you know, they're, you're playing around, but this is why it's important to listen to your, if you have good parents and they're trying to, you know, keep you from these kinds of situations, this is very helpful because you've, you've, if you listen to them, you've already avoided these kinds of situations. And if you pay attention to the law, which not many people do, you've already avoided the situation. But let's just say that you end up being that kind of, you know, that, in that kind of situation. It's going to be much harder. You still can, there's a choice, it's still choice. It's going to just going to be harder. You've come to a place where you've dug yourself into a situation where you shouldn't have been in, but you can still, how you say, you can still be pulled out of it. You can climb out. You can do something about it eventually. There have been there have been many alcohol. I mean, that's why AA exists. AA wouldn't exist if we didn't believe it worked. If we didn't believe that there are, you know, people who have been alcoholics for many many years who are turning their lives around. So, which is which is a great testament to the power of the human mind and the power of the will or the power of the choice, the, the will to choose, right? So. Um, I would say it's still possible, but it's going to be a whole lot harder than you um, than it would have been. Absolutely. No, I I I, I agree with you that like if it, if there's like one person that over can overcome it, like it it does give hope to the rest of people. Like okay, um, this person has. I mean, it's hard to say that two people have the same exact genetic predispositions. You know, I, I wish I knew a lot more about DNA and RNA and all that good stuff, and I could actually splice how how much similar we all are and how much more different we all are. Let me ask you this. Why has it become such a social taboo in our modern society to judge people for not exercising good free will? Like, I I think in the past, we were a lot more judgy of like, hey, man, I I know that it's hard for you, but you need to like exercise some control over yourself and put down that bottle. Whereas it seems now we've become more permissive or more understanding of like, oh, this is just simply out of John's control. He just, when he gets like that, he just can't help himself. What, what, why do you think there's been this like cultural shift? Is it because we have more science or do you think there's something else that's like softening us up? Well, like, that's, I, would, I would say that I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I, I would look at that and it's, it's strange, but I do believe you're right. We are a bit more you know, permissive. And um, I think if you just, thinking about it now it seems as though that it's something along the lines of i mean it's a couple of factors we don't when we when 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 kids grow up they end up rejecting the way of their parents especially if they were you know especially if they were hard parents or um or t- parents who were too loose you know what i mean it's always when you don't when you don't have this re- reverence for them you end up you end up rejecting their ways it's the same thing with generations the, the previous, the, the, the present generation always believes it knows way better than the previous generation. And so we come from a generation or our parents come from a generation of, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, do the best you can and uh, make the right decisions. We come from a generation that rejects all that and says, well, you know, it's not necessarily about, it's, a, it's not necessarily about all that. It's really about, you know, um, uh, emotional emotional health, making sure that everybody's okay, making sure that nobody's feelings are hurt, making sure that things are um, things are said right. So you see, it's a, it's a very it's a very different generation, and I, I I think that we think that it's more loving to 
to let people, uh, until of course it infringes on our um, convenience, then it's troublesome. But we think that it's more loving, more more accepting, which is loving, right? We, th we wanna be loving, so we try to be more accepting of everybody's of everybody's uh, quirks, no matter how detrimental it is to them. And I think it's also because we ourselves want to want the permission to do what we want to do. So if I'm telling you that you get to, I don't know, um, drink yourself into oblivion, it means that I'm also giving myself the same permission. Now, it's not necessarily a bad thing to want these things for people and to let people, and I, I, I believe people ought to make their choices, but we're, we're living in a society and it's growing all the more in the sense of we're living in a society where people are, don't believe in holding, in holding responsibility don't believe in holding in yeah in, in responsibility we all we, we we tend to shift responsibility towards someone else or something else so it's not your it's not you who's doing it it's your natural disposition towards doing these things it's not you who's doing it it's your parents who did it to you to make you do it it's not you who's doing it it's your society and so forth and um, but we we superficially believe that we don't actually believe that because if we did, well, prisons wouldn't exist, now would they? Would they? No, they, they wouldn't because it's not really the criminal's fault. We'd probably have some other situation for them, right? We wouldn't call it prisons. We'd probably call it, you know, um, retainment camps where we hold people who are just not rights for society, but they can have their own little society in there. And, you know, um, then we call it prison and we hope that prison reforms. To reform is to change, right? To change the form of something. We, so if we believe, if we believe that, if we really did believe that people aren't responsible for their actions or should be let loose to do what they want to do, then it wouldn't, prisons wouldn't exist, and it wouldn't be a matter of reform. It would simply be a matter of you know letting things as they are, but just doing it not where I am. I, I think you're spot on with this. I think we have become a society of ideas of holding ideas but then holding contradictory actions i think of like the rich man who's like oh you know the poor are not responsible criminals are not responsible for what they do it's their upbringing but then the second like a shady person enters their neighborhood they're the first to like pick up the phone and call the police and say yeah, yeah there's a suspicious guy outside my window you know so like they will outwardly profess um this sort of like you know people you know criminals they're not they're genetically predisposed but the second it infringes upon their happiness or their welfare they're the first to call the police i want to also go into a i'm not saying i believe in this theory but i want to run it by you and i'm actually going to steal a page out of your own book to kind of present this theory uh, i think you once said anytime you see a virtuous cause follow the money trail so i'm gonna i'm gonna also apply that law as well that was a good law so what about this idea that there's an industry to be made out of having all of these victims. So I'll give you an example. If you have an alcoholic relative, the old fashioned way of doing it is, you know, like a good giant, you know, kick in the behind, like you need to get your act together. Like, you know, you run into the liquor cabinet, you destroy all the liquor, you don't give them any money. You basically just make life difficult for them and, and put them between a rock and a hard place until they kind of just clean their act up and, and fix themselves. But now there seems to be like entire industries dedicated on rehabilitation and 
maybe it kind of loosens the chains of family responsibility because now there's like an outside organization or rehab center that's you're, you're kind of outsourcing like these problems of personal responsibility used to fall squarely into the family unit and now a lot of these things are being outsourced to medical professionals and so forth so do you think perhaps there's like an industry in convincing people that they're suffering from like genetic predispositions because if you need a certain med if you need a certain medication there's money to be made off of that. If you need to be moved into an expensive rehab uh, facility, there's money to be made off that. I'm not saying I believe in this. And I'm sure that a lot of these institutions do very, very, very fine and, and good work. And I applaud them for doing that, especially for those people who don't have perhaps a family or support system. But do you think that this onus on personal responsibility has been shifted um, because there's money to be made off of like having people in, in like, this victim label? Well, I think it's always, yeah. So I can't say definitively, absolutely, yes, this is why all these industries exist. But if we're looking at a matter of, looking at it as a matter of principle, yeah, it's victims who need help. It's simple, right? It's victims who need, victims who need help and it's victims and helping requires money. So if, if, you're, if you're looking at a populace and trying to victimize them, turn them all into believing they are victims of one thing or the other, then there's going to be the next best thing. The next thing that comes after that is fundraising to help these people who are, and sure, that's that's not a bad thing. Well, I won't say that victimizing a whole nation is bad, is good, but I would say that if you are finding actual people who are have been victimized, marginalized, and and and, and uh, yeah, just down on your luck, then it's good to help those people. I'm very suspicious of corporate help. I think individual help is can be good. And I think that that's what that's what people do. We we help our neighbors, right? But when it comes to corporate help, government help, and corporate help, it's sure they will help people. I'm not saying that's not the case. I'm saying that if, eventually, eventually, it's no longer about the people. This is it. You have these silly commercials on on television where you know a corporation is saying, "We're all family here. We care for you." You know, but they're paying them less than minimum wage. The working working environments are terrible. Uh, people get fired for getting injured on the job, so that they don't have either don't um, either don't have to pay for the medical um, they don't have to pay pay the medical bills, and uh, they 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 put they put their employees in all kinds of hell. Now, I'm not saying that there are a lot of employees that will be happy there. But a lot of employees know this the case that they're not really family they're just being used for money a corporation is here to make money a corporation is not here to make you feel good about yourself people are you know when when people raise their hands up at amazon saying oh we know they should blah blah, blah do more of this and more of that no 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 that's what their job the, the very existence of amazon is to make money they, they is to make money you think oh they're here for they're not here for you they're here to make money you are a dollar bill now, so they, they, there was this in a documentary I watched where they said that I mean, Jeff Bezos would say, you know, what about the consumer, right? There, there was an empty chair for the consumer so that we could consider what the consumer wanted and how he felt about certain things and so forth. Well, that's all, that's all good and dandy. Sure. But why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Is it because the consumer, you care about the consumer's well-being? Or is it because the, more, the happier the consumer is, the more money the consumer is willing to spend? If you have happy consumers, they don't leave your organization. They don't turn their backs on you, which means more money comes in. So eventually, I think it'd be I think it'd be naive and maybe even silly 
to think that a corporation or a, or, or a, a large organization that is built around a certain, especially a certain victimization or a certain public issue is not there for some financial gain. If they were not there for some financial gain, you have to show me the books. You have to show me who's getting paid. You have to show me how much, you know, you've got to show me who's getting paid. You know what I mean? Um, and who's not getting paid. So I think that it's just a way of corporations. It's a way of government. It's all about, it's all about money. It's, it's, you find that money is the number one thing and then everything else. Yeah, no, I, I think, I, I think even, even no matter how altruistic the mission statement of a company is, whether they're profit, nonprofit, like even if they're a nonprofit, for example, it's in the CEO's business and the vice president or whoever works there, the board of directors for that nonprofit to exist. Even if the company itself is not making a profit, they still want to maintain their salaries. Like if that nonprofit, if, if there's no reason for that nonprofit to be there, then their salaries and their positions and their titles are just completely gone. It doesn't matter whether it's making a profit or not. So it's in, there is an incentive for these uh, organizations to exist. I, I think this happens, like I'll give you some examples. Like I've had students before where, you know, they'll act up in class and, you know, there's an industry of like, oh man, it's, it's, you know, they can't control it. They have ADHD or they have this or that. And again, like the, the kid is, basically not held accountable for their behavior because, you know, again, sometimes it's very legitimate and sometimes, you know, it's a little fuzzy. I've had students before who act up in class and they acted really recklessly. And then suddenly when they turned 18 and entered the workforce or entered the military, suddenly whatever impairment they had when they were in school just magically vanished because they knew it was no nonsense. Like, like you, you'd be like, oh, I can't control myself. I can't help but be hyper. And then a year later, they're in the military and a drill sergeant is screaming at them. Suddenly they have like discipline now and suddenly they have self-control. It's like your entire first 18 years of education, no self-control. I have this impairment. I, I, I am predestined to act up and make fart jokes in class. Now, like a few months later, you're in the military now suddenly you're, you're, or you're able to overcome your genetic limitations and stand still with your hands at your side and follow orders. So th th this, is, this is what drives me nuts is that there, there might be people who are legitimately mentally ill and mentally struggling. And they, they, even if you threw them in the military, they would get kicked out and they just wouldn't be able to follow uh, the letter of the law. Fair enough. I'm sure that there are people who truly exist like that. But I think there's a lot of people who are kind of piggybacking on this, you know, victimhood label because it's a get out of free jail card. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things. <laughs> so if I, uh, the question comes to mind, if if a kid is acting up, hyperaction, you know, a hyperactive kid, right? You find, especially in classes, it's like you find that it always it's it's never it's never oh let me be use my hyperactivity to actually do something good and productive. It's usually use my hyperactivity to be disruptive and destructive. It's like okay, if you're if you're hyperactive at home, why don't you just go mow the lawn? You know, why don't you do the dishes? Why don't you make your bed? Use it, use that energy, all that energy. Why can't you use that energy to do good? Well, well, because you know, it's hyperactive hyperactivity is you know, it's uh, well. Tell me, please, it's it's is it 
why why is it that it's always you know it's always something destructive or something disruptive and never never helpful when they start earning that paycheck they don't want that paycheck to stop so they behave themselves the the, the problem is not that these things exist it's how we interact with them and, and what we think what we think it means that these things exist right we think so just because someone is hyperactive we think that we can't tell them what to do as, as especially as a teacher right you can't tell a kid okay you can't go around yelling obscene jokes in class. What does it have to do with hyperactivity, you know? And um, um, yeah, so we're very, it's a very interesting time. But it yeah, is, those- No, it, it is very interesting because, okay, so let's say we have a classroom and we have a student that yells obscene jokes. The scientist will come and be like, whoa, 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 that kid is yelling obscene jokes because they don't have any free will. They're predisposed to act that way. They're predisposed to be hyperactive and silly and so forth. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And then bear in mind, you know, a year or two later, they become an adult and now suddenly they're working at a job and they know the second they, you know, tell a customer an obscene joke, they're going to get fired. Now, all of a sudden, we got that thing under control within 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 months, within within the course of a summer vacation. So why, like, this is where I think, like, on one hand, there's a part of me of like, oh, man, these, these psychologists are just hyper intellectuals, and they're just naive, and they, you know, they're just too theoretical. But then there's a dark side to me that's like, wait a minute, maybe, maybe these psychologists know the truth. They know that these kids can behave themselves. However, there's an industry there to kind of medicate these kids or make excuses for them so that other services can be offered. That's, that's the dark side of my nature there. Yeah. But this, you know, it's one of those things that it's just, it's hard to say because next thing you know, you say something like that and it was like, okay, everybody get your tinfoil hats out. You know, um, <laughs> it's like all of a sudden you, you become like the, the conspiracy guy, but I would say that it's a good thing to look at. It's an interesting thing to it's an interesting thing to look at. Like just if if we're looking at it, say okay, really who who is there? Let's just say we don't we don't you don't say that these things don't exist, right? Where you say okay, they do exist, sure, but the way we go about it, you know, who's who who benefits from the prolongation of these things? First of all, who benefits from the diagnosis of these things? Second, who um, and who who benefits from creating the structure? Um, in which parents and teachers and people who have to deal with these things interact with these things. So, <laughs> and it's it's interesting because if if you if you look at it, you, the answers I'm not going to say what the answer is, but you you might find out that okay, it's a bit it's a bit odd, but sure, coincidences happen all the time in life, right? So um, so I I would say that yeah maybe maybe you know it, it's not like there's this you know shadow 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 governments or shadow scientists shadow group of scientists and psychologists and so forth who are planning these things out sure i mean i hope not but it's it's just interesting that uh that these kids often correct themselves not all of them some of them don't some of them end up not really having a not having can, can they can't keep a proper job you know and uh the one might say well then why is that? Is it because it just really is a natural disposition for them and they really can't help themselves? Okay, but what if it's because they never learned any self-control at all? They never had a reason to. To this day, they're victims. No matter what they do, no matter what, no matter where they are, they're still victims and don't even believe that they can change or choose 
um, if not to change, we're not saying we're not saying you can. Let's just say we're not saying that you can, you know, one hundred percent put this this thing under wraps, but at least make an effort to um, to provide for yourself and your family and all that. I, I think we also have the tendency to overcorrect for something in our society. So, for example, th- let's say there are one or two individuals who genuinely, when they turn eighteen, nineteen they get a job, they go into the military, and they still are hyperactive, you know, that th- those cases might be genuine and true. There might be those kind of individuals that, you know, even when there's a paycheck on the line, they still can't control themselves. I think the overcorrection happens when normal kids, quote unquote, start piggybacking on those outliers. So you have like the one or two outliers that truly can't control themselves, the normal kids see the outlier getting away with all sorts of stuff. And they're like, they start scratching their chin saying, hmm, I want to get away with stuff too. And then they start, you know, um, like piggybacking on that. And perhaps psychologists just don't have the correct diagnostic tools to be like, who is the true outlier that is predisposed to act this way, no matter what the circumstances is? And who are the normal kids who are kind of like, faking these symptoms or sort of piggybacking on these exemptions yeah i mean (laughs) (laughs) i love kids man well in a way i think they're they're really good at you know taking advantage of things and i think they give um they're just little hell raisers so they're all power to them if they're gonna if they found a way to get away with things you know so (laughs) um yeah they the kids are quite sharper and quite, you know, they're, they're sharper than we think, especially when it comes to, you know, mischief. All right, let, let's, um, let's move back into the adult territory, because I think the stakes, the stakes are higher, right? You can, you can be a knucklehead at 14, 15, 16, and have some fun and get away with things and then correct yourself when you turn 18. I, I, I know many people like that. Um, Let's talk about the adults, though, who who sort of fall into this victim, this um, victim trap. Thinking back to the example that I used in the very, very, very beginning about the poor slum neighborhood and in a third world country, for example, how do we hold, how do we evaluate people as being successful or failures? And I think this is where a lot of unfair judgment might come in there because let's say you have siblings. I'll make it even easier. Let's say you have a uh, two siblings, an older brother, a younger brother, older sister, whatever. And the father is like, well, why couldn't you be like your older brother who became a doctor and so forth, right? We, You grew up in the same household. You know, I gave you guys the same opportunity. Your older brother, you know, won a Nobel Peace Prize. And, you know, here you are working at a used car dealership or something. And at what point can the younger brother say, yes, we did have the same economic opportunities, but my older brother is just smarter than me. He's just more inclined to do well in medicine and more inclined to win a Nobel Prize, whereas I have a uh, predisposition to be more of a social animal and I like selling things and chatting people up and whatever. I can't help it that I am in a lower paid occupation. That's just where my natural interests and inclinations lie. Do we as a society, is it right for society to say that the older sibling who became a a doctor is the success story and the younger sibling that becomes like a used car salesman is the failure? Or do we remove all such labels and say that each of them is doing what their respective talents uh, told them to do? 
Well, if I if I can look at it, I'll say that they're both in, in one way they're both successes because they're I, if they're both functioning functioning mem members of society, they're uh, they've you know they they have work that pays the bills and you know takes care of the family. Sure, I think they're doing both doing well. Now, the one who's made more money and who's you know won the peace prize is absolutely um, is a greater success. Is a greater success because he has more money. Right, more money, which means that he has he has a, that that which we all strive to attain, which is money. He's made a lot of that. He's made more of that, and he makes more of that quicker. He makes more of that um, with less efforts. So okay, he's a he's a greater success. If we, if we measure if we measure what we're all looking for, what we're what the very nature of work is, the nature of work is at least fundamentally, ultimately, is to is is cash, cold hard cash. You know, so yeah, then he, the older brother is a greater success, but both of them are successes because they've gone into fields that hopefully they both like, and if they are they are making enough money to pay the bills, made enough money to to be part you know to to participate in society as functional members. So um, yeah, I kind of want to use the metric as money as success. I'm not saying I personally believe that to be true, but let's just, I just want to play with that for a little bit here. So there's this argument and I, I have friends in my life and people who, who love saying, well, you should have majored in this, right? We have, we know those guys, right? The STEM majors who are like, you should have measured, you should have, if you wanted a house or you wanted a livable wage, you should have majored in this, right? And on one hand, we would say that the doctor and the used car salesman are both successful if they are productive members of society, if they're going to work or whatever. What happens when the used car salesman says, you know, I, I, I do work every day. I, I make, I, I make, I use my free will and I don't drink alcohol. I go to work every day. I work hard at what I do. However, my job doesn't afford me health insurance or my wage is too low to really, you know, afford an apartment or something. On one hand, if you're pure free will, you'd be like, well, you should have you should have majored in engineering and not become a used car salesman, right? Like the ultra free will people are going to hold the used car salesman responsible and hold their feet to the fire and say, you should have been like your older brother. If you wanted health insurance, if you wanted a livable wage, you should have majored in those things and been successful like your older sibling. On the other hand, what do we owe somebody who is being productive in society? Like they, they have made the free will choice to be a productive member of society, but their natural limits just don't afford them a high paying job or whatever. Do we owe that person anything or do we live in a, a doggy dog world where it's like, sorry, if you don't have the right natural inclinations and you just don't deserve health insurance or a certain wage? Yeah, no, I, I don't think I don't think society owes that person anything besides what the society provides as rights to us as citizens. So, for example, if you're if you're doing if you're working that job, and it's the job is the job you can do and you're doing it, then absolutely society naturally depends on where you live, of course. So let's just say for the United States, society owes you a couple of things. You're paying your taxes, so you, they owe you good roads and if, and uh, and uh, um, and infrastructure, right? So if they you also have the rights to how you say um, um, to do whatever the hell you want with your money, and so 
I would say that there's certain natural rights, not necessarily natural in the sense of nature, but natural in the sense of governments. Should I say so? So civil, 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 civil rights, civic rights, right? That that every employee, every citizen, and employee has. But when it comes to, if we're looking at it as an, in a natural sense, in a in a cause in a in a cosmic or a, should I say a, a global sense, then no, I don't think I don't think that person is owed anything. But here's the thing, though. Every now and then you have outliers, you have very strange human beings that walk into a person like that's life and takes a chance on them. You have situations where um, I recently heard a story about a young man who was, I think, an intern at a, at a an intern or a janitor actually at a, at a, at a company. And uh, he had he had an idea. He had an idea about the company. This is not a particularly, I don't know, P, I mean, he's a janitor for goodness sakes. I'm not saying that he's not smart. I'm just saying that he has doesn't have the educational powerhouse or gusto or or background to back him up. But somebody higher up once had struck up a conversation with him and heard his idea, didn't steal it, didn't take it from him, but actually um, invited him to meet some other guys and he talked to him about the idea and it turned out to be a very good idea. And he started making Boku dollars because he had he he got he got promoted beyond beyond you know um beyond what he was doing so every now and then you have people who and this is a way it's beautiful when it happens on a very individual level right because it's people who are not forced choice meeting choice it's choice meeting choice which is where humanity actually happens all life is meeting all actual life is meeting that's a quote by i think uh, i forget his name but is a, a theologian or philosopher of um, martin buber all actual life is meeting. And he, and this, the idea is, the idea for me is this, okay? That when people take a chance on people, when people see that they can be of service to you, to elevate you from where you actually are, or even where you, from where you deserve to be to a place where you naturally do not deserve, quote unquote, to be. And that's where, that's where humanity kicks in. When I first came to this country, I had very little, I had nothing really. Eventually I, I met a good friend of mine to this day, a Japanese Brazilian man who made sure that I lacked nothing. When I wasn't able to work, he always provided for me. Today, he's a good friend of mine. Now, now I'm doing fine on my own, but he's still, he's, he's a good friend of mine. And he, he was the one who, um, he was the one who took a chance on a young lad who didn't have an education. So yeah, they couldn't, what, what am I going to do with that? You know, and what am I going to do? What am I going to do without an education, right? He took a chance on a lad who didn't have an education, who wasn't even a citizen at the time, didn't really have even a work permit to work here. And he, he did well for me. My point is simply, I know, I know that um, there are those who would say, you know, free will, and therefore, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And those who will say, "Well, no free will," so it's all, it's all, you know, it's all according to your own circumstance and your 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 DNA and so forth. But it's 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 somewhere in the middle, and it's 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 people who make it beautiful. It's people who make it actual and real. I would say, yeah, no one deserves anything. The the, the world doesn't owe you anything. Absolutely not. It doesn't, because. If you look at the world, it really is dog eat dog. But humans make it interestingly different. Humans are the only creatures that come about to one another and try to elevate one another to, on an individual level, to a greater status, to a greater plane, to help each other when we're 
how you say, when we can't necessarily help ourselves. And so I would say that we make that choice every now and then, and it's a beautiful thing, but they don't owe you that. They do it, that's why it's love. It wouldn't be love if they owed you that. It wouldn't be kindness if it was owed you, right? So the very fact that it's love means you're not owed it, but they make the choice to do it anyway. And I think that's awesome. Okay, no, I, I, I fully agree with you that human agency and human receptiveness to the plight of others solves a lot of these problems. You're, you're absolutely correct. Like if you're, if you're a CEO and you're paying attention to not just like your, the people who work in your marketing department, but you're also paying attention to the person who's changing the toilet paper rolls, you're just that much more of an effective CEO and person because then you can spot talent where you least expect to find it. I am going to, I am going to like play with your theory just a little bit here. Okay. And I'm going to, and I'm going to say that no two janitors are created equal. And and here's how I'm going to make this argument. Okay. Let's say we got two janitors, Ralph and Mark. Ralph, let's just say Ralph is just, he's not academically inclined. He just is a slow learner. He's not very articulate. He's not very good at abstract thinking. And the best possible job that Ralph can ever get is being a janitor or working at Burger King. It just like he's a good guy, like he's a solid guy. He has a smile on his face. But for whatever reason, he's never going to woo the CEO. He's never going to be he's never going to have the mental ability to go up to the CEO and being like, you know, I was checking your uh, portfolio on your website there. And I think a good innovation would be right. He's just it's never going to emanate from him because it's just not within him. And then you have, who did I say the other gender was named? Ralph and we'll call him Tom. <laughs> I, think I'm tempting, I think I'm changing the name, okay? We got Tom. He, let's say, migrated from another country, but Tom has like a, you know, 130 IQ and he just happens to be a janitor. Like he just, he had to support himself. He migrated from another country. His foreign credentials did not carry over. But he has the mental ability, even though he's physically locked into the position of a janitor, he has the mental acumen to, you know, um, like learn English and then go to the CEO and being like, although I am a humble janitor, I have read this economic theory book and I think our company, you know, so, and, and what happens is let's say the CEO says, you know, Tom, you know, even though you're just, you know, cleaning the toilets here, you're a really smart cat, you deserve better, I'm going to move things around and we'll be like, oh, the system works, right? But hold on one second. Ralph's Ralph working at a hundred percent capacity just cannot be anything more than a janitor. It, it's hard to and, and let's say Ralph falls down and breaks his arm and Ralph's job doesn't afford him health insurance. Is it right to hold Ralph responsible and be like, hey, Ralph, you know, you're trying your best. You're a janitor. You go to work every day. And we know that mentally you just you can't be beyond that of a janitor. But we don't owe you a hospital visit. We don't side does not owe you. You don't have the right to getting your arm fixed because you're a janitor. And that job just doesn't happen to offer comprehensive health insurance. There is an argument of like, hey, Ralph's mental ability does not afford him a better job. Just Ralph working at 110%, this is the best that he can do. We ought to give him some health insurance because he's operating at 100% capacity. Whereas Tom, you know, he's gifted with a much sharper mind and is able to transfer to a job that's more in accordance with his skill set. So that's where I'm kind of being like, well, you know, maybe society needs to 
needs to kind of kick in the slack for where natural barriers exist. Yeah, it would, that's, that's the thing. So it's the same situation. So for example, we could take it the other way. And instead of even Tom being found and promoted, it's, it's Ralph that's found and prom not promoted, if not promoted, because there's, let's just say there's nothing else that he can do and he cannot be a, he can't be an asset to the company in that way, right? So on an intellectual level, he cannot be an asset to the company. But we can still give him a pay bump. We can still, we can, and we can still, how you say, um, we can still give him a good, we can still give him good insurance. Now, those are things that, those are things that Ralph doesn't necessarily, how you say, he does not deserve, but it can still be done to him. He's not owed it, but it's still done for him. And I think that's, that's, it's still where humans meet humans. It's, you don't necessarily have to deserve or be owed something for it to come your way. There are people today who have, how you say, who can tell the difference between, you know, um, a hole in the ground from their butts, but they can, but they've been given a wicked and a brilliant inheritance from their grandparents. You know what I mean? They've been given that. It's not, now the grandparents don't owe them that. Society thinks that your, you know, your inheritance is owed you. It's not, your parents could easily give you, it's their money. It's not yours. It's their money. They worked hard for it. They could easily give it to charity. But they give it to you, right? Because you're their offspring and they care for you. My point is simply that I do believe that you're right. There are people that are incredibly, they are stuck where they are. They're stuck where they are. Um, but every now and then, every now and then, it's not, we don't all get lucky. We don't all get, we don't all get this. But every now and then, um, some of us get what we don't deserve. Some of us get something, something strange, something good and strange, you know? We get that pay bump that we just never thought would happen. We get that um, we get that insurance um, that that inheritance money. We get that um, we get that position, you know, or the opportunity to invest in something, and it turns out to be for you know for the better. It, I'm just saying this. This is why this is why even with with the, all the constraints of life against free will, it also makes a lot of it also brings a lot of opportunities to express free will. So life brings constraints, constraints and opportunities. So the constraints are the things that we cannot, how you say, we, we cannot easily break, you know, uh, we, can't, we can't easily make headway um, because of those things. But the opportunities that come, sometimes come to us in spite of our free will, in spite of our choices. Um, you hear stories of, um, you hear stories of, you know, uh, guys or gals who were just at the right place at the right time if they didn't even want to be there they were forced to be there you know and they met the love of their lives or they got this wicked job opportunity you know or they found a million dollars who knows you know but life brings not just constraints but opportunities and free will has to interact free choice has to interact with uh with with both respectively okay I, I we're, we're, we're in some very difficult territory because it's a very, this is a very nuanced subject matter, okay? So let's pretend we're dealing with some ultra free will advocates and let's say they've read one too many Iron Rand books and they go up to Ralph, he breaks his arm and they're like, no, Ralph, it's your fault. You should not have chosen to be a janitor. You should have chosen to be an engineer or a doctor and you would have had health insurance if you had chosen those professions and you would not have a broken arm right now. How do we talk to these ultra free will advocates and 
explain it, explain Ralph's situation in such a way of like, well, hey, Ralph does go to work every day. Ralph makes a decision to, to do the right thing and to do his job with diligence and patience and care. And, and But this is the best that Ralph can possibly do for himself. We ought to afford him like an arm that doesn't hurt because this is the best that he can possibly do without without permanently labeling Ralph a victim. See, this is where the conversation gets very dangerous because we tend to overcorrect and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Like there's other people who'll be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Ralph shouldn't even have to work as a janitor. We should just fully take care of Ralph. We should provide him a house. He doesn't need to go to work anymore. He's incapable of working. That's the other side of the spectrum where Ralph gets 100% victim status, doesn't even have to show up to work. Or let's say Ralph starts showing up two hours late to his janitor job. No, 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 Ralph, Ralph is confused. He doesn't know better. We have to forgive this. So how do we... What do we say about Ralph that we, we perfectly get it? We have to get it perfect where it's like Ralph is accountable for these things, but not accountable for these other set of things. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's hard. It's hard to talk to people like that about, to tell people who believe that Ralph should have pulled himself up by his bootstraps, that Ralph can't, it's, it, that Ralph either can't or uh, Ralph is, this is actually Ralph, what you're seeing here is Ralph pulling himself up by his bootstraps. That's what you're seeing. Him as a janitor is him doing his utmost best, really. It's hard for them to understand this. People like that, it's, 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 it's hard for them to see it. They cannot see it because that's not, they, it's hard for the, often that's not how it should be. But for those who consider themselves strong, it's hard for them to sympathize, quote unquote, with the weak. Right. And I, but that's not how it should be. It should be that Lewis always said that the greater includes the lesser. And strength should understand weakness. It just should. It naturally, if, if it's true strength, it needs to be able to understand the it needs to understand weakness. Just like it's important for, excuse me, it's important for um for people who are knowledgeable. If you're gonna be a teacher, it's good for you to understand those who don't know. Because it, it makes you, it, it gives you a better avenue. As, it gives you a better as avenue as a teacher to communicate what you do know. See, now this is something I run to, especially with a lot of teachers who teach math, not to throw them under the bus. <laughs> but a lot of math teachers, math came very quickly to them. So when they have students in their classroom that struggle with math, they'll be like, how do you not understand this? I explained slope 10 different times. You're, you just don't get it. You know, like, and they get frustrated. And it's like, well, hold on now you're viewing life through the prism of your own understanding. So a lot of people who um, blame others, sometimes like they were just very, they won the genetic lottery and everything just came to them very quickly. So they, they are unable to understand how things, yeah, exactly. They're unable to understand how things don't come as quickly to others. And therefore they hold this, this high bar of like, well, if I was able to become, you know, a scientist slash doctor slash engineer slash lawyer, then everyone should be able to, to do that. Right. And, and again, the, the iron rand kind of people would point at Ralph and be like, well, Hey, how come Tom was able to work his way up to a position that has health insurance, right? And that's that's the argument they're going to make. But we have to get those people to understand that Ralph is hardwired differently, and 110 percent is his hundred percent is different than Tom's hundred percent. But at the same time, 
it's not unreasonable to expect that Ralph shows up to work every single day and does his job duties. Yeah, so it's it's really hard for them to see that they don't they don't they don't see that until until something catastrophic happens in their own life, until something that something that whether or not they expressed their freedom of choice would have inevitably crippled them anyway. You know what I mean? That's that's when they see okay maybe. <laughs> Maybe it's, it's usually suffering. There's nothing like suffering to really even the planes, you know? So it, it's, it, you can't talk to people like that. You cannot communicate, you can talk to them, but not about this. You can't communicate with them. Well, you can, but it's a waste of time because you're not gonna understand this. It makes no sense. You're speaking a different language. You're, 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 fun, you're standing on fundamental, fundamentally different grounds. And there's a huge chasm which you have to cross. And I'm not, I don't think I'm man enough or smart enough to build that bridge. So it's, 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 I don't know that it's possible, but what I do know, what I know is possible is instead of wasting time arguing with a person who thinks Ralph's an idiot and Ralph is lazy and Ralph is dumb or whatever it is, is just turn your attention to Ralph and do what you can for Ralph. Because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter if anybody understands what, what is and what isn't is that if you understand it, if you understand it and you can do, some people can't do something, you can understand things and not be able to do something about it. But if you understand it and you can do something, then I would say, fine, go ahead and do something. But there's no way in hell, a person who is sitting on a throne, a person who has everything in the world, everything, and everything comes easy to them, there is no way they will understand that until, until catastrophe hits and hits hard. Or even... Or even just forcing them to do something outside their comfort zone. I remember once I worked with a, a chemistry teacher. I worked at a school and there was a chemistry teacher there. And she was very brilliant at her subject area. But we were doing this professional development session. And she had to, we had to all write a poem or something. And she just could not do it. She's like, I emotions, I don't understand you know like she just like 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 like, like it was like robot shut down you know like, and it was like i think that's a good experience where it's like she feels high and mighty teaching chemistry but then the moment she's asked to do an activity outside her comfort area she demonstrates weakness of like i i can't do this and that, that's a good like these humbling experiences create empathy because now hopefully from that experience she'll be more understanding like okay some people are hardwired to create poetry and other people are um you know hardwired to do chemistry or something like that so i think humbling experiences do that for people and they're really awesome at doing that yeah. so now we have to talk to our friends who want to over victimize Ralph. So let's say we've got this social worker who takes Ralph as a client and is saying, Ralph can't come to work five days a week. You're lucky if he can make it to work two days a week. So now, now you're dealing with the other end of this where it's like they're too overly empathetic to Ralph. And now they're giving him handicaps where there need not be handicaps. So how, how do we evaluate somebody such as Ralph? Because you'd have to know a lot about Ralph in order to make these judgments. And like, can we actually live in a world where everyone has a specific goal set? Like, is it, is that even realistic that every janitor has a different set of goals depending on their individual aptitude? Is that, is that even possible? So where do we draw the line? Like, how do we know when Ralph is legitimately getting an accommodation that he needs? or being overly victimized. So how, how do we talk to those other people on the other side of the aisle? 
first of all, I, people like that, it's, it's, it's um, because, so these two spectrums, I, and I, these, these two extremes of the spectrum, I, I think they're lunatics. I think they're people who are-, are. You know, Anyone who, who hangs out on the end of a spectrum is a lunatic. It's lunatic. <laughs> you've, you've totally abandoned reason. You've, and you've, you've become swirled up in, you've become swirled up in your passions, in, in your, in your, you know, in your, this, your emotional, your emotional assessment of the situation. Because I think a reasonable person just needs to step back for five minutes. I would, let, me give, let me just say 30 minutes and really consider this. Consider all of nature, consider all of life. Use reason to look at, look, 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 look at history, look at, look at life as it actually is. And tell me that, you know, that everyone or that, that Ralph, let's just specifically Ralph, that Ralph is a victim of something, right? So it's not that Ralph necessarily is a victim. I would say that Ralph, Ralph has constraints, like everybody else has constraints. He just has constraints in areas that are, how you say, um, hyper-focused on. Right, so this is this is first thing you do when you ask somebody when you meet well first thing you ask when you meet someone is what do you do, man? Right, and he said, "Well, I'm a, um, uh, I'm a you know social philosopher with a PhD." And well, he's okay, wonderful, great. And you're like, "Hey, what do you, man?" I said, "I'm a janitor." I said, "Oh, isn't that sad?" Oh, oh, it's like, dude. First of all, calm the hell down. That has nothing, that has very little to do with who the person is as an, as an actual entity, right? But fine, let's just see you classify them based on what they do. That's fine, that's fine, sure. But Raph's not a victim. Raph may need help in certain places in his life, like he may need, he may need to make more money, sure. He may need to make, um, uh, to have, he may need to have better health care or whatever it may be. But he's not a victim, he's a human being, he's a human man, you know what I mean? And if Raph was a gal, then Raph is a, Raph is a grown ass woman. You know, so the strange name for a gal, but I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> so I think that, um, I think, yeah, if you want to help somebody, you don't have to degrade them. Like, it's strange, right? It's one of the things where you, you want to help someone, but you want to shout it from the rooftops and you want the person to always be reliant, in the reliance on you. You're not really helping them, mate. You're shackling them. And I would say you're actually, this is, this is far more destructive than the first people, at least the first people thought he was a human, right? Their air was that, oh, he's just like me, right? What you're saying is he's way, way less than I am, you know? So that's a bit more insulting, honestly. I'd rather, I'd rather someone tell me, well, you can make that jump, can't you? And I'm like, oh, well, thank you for that. But no, I don't think I can. I've tried that and I've fallen to my face like many times. Rather than someone saying, oh, yeah, hey, hey, hey. Here's a trampoline, and here's a backpack filled with snacks, you know, <laughs> and talking to me like I'm a kid. So I think that, uh, I think it's lunacy, and we should, if you want to help someone, help them. By all means, please help them. Be, a serv be of service to your fellow man, by all means, yes. But don't think less of him. Don't, don't, don't make it that you have to think less of him in order to help him, because he's not less. He's just a lad with constraints, simple. There's certain constraints that everybody faces, like, you know, and they're usually social constraints. But in this case, it's an intellectual constraint, which is, which is, which is real. It's a real thing, you know? We're not all Michelangelo's. There is no way in hell 
no way in hell you can compare me to like what's his name, Da Vinci. I'm, he's a smart man. Albert Einstein, there's a reason, there's a reason when you call someone an Einstein, you're either making fun of them because they're dumb and supposed to be reflect the opposite, or an Einstein, they're geniuses, they're, they're brilliant, their minds work like fireworks, right? With a bang. So I would say, no man, don't don't go around, don't behave as though the man is less than a man or the woman is less than a woman, less anything less than human. But if you're going to help them, help them. Yeah. I think that's that's a brilliant answer. I'm going to take it even. I'm being I'm being hard on you today. I'm going to. I, I'm, I'm very I'm very <laughs> passionate. I'm be, I'm very passionate about free will, and I think you are too. So it, it's okay if this conversation goes a little bit longer. Okay. No worries. All right. So we've established that it is wrong to compare Ralph to Tom. Right, two separate animals, right there, two separate human beings, two separate. One is a genius that just happens to be a janitor, and one is truly meant to be a janitor. Well, I'm going to throw in a third person, and we're going to call this guy Willie. Okay, slick, slick Willie. Slick Willie. Slick Willie. Mm-hmm. All right, we're throwing Slick Willie into the mix, and he's also a janitor here, and he's he's no Tom, but he's slightly smarter than Ralph. Okay, so let's say he's, you know, he's not going to be a CEO or anything that, you know, his mind isn't taking him to those levels, but he's a bit smarter, a little bit more clever than Ralph is, but he's also working as a janitor. And the boss comes in and says, Ralph, to clean an entire bathroom, I'm giving you one hour because you're Ralph and that's just how long it takes for you to, to clean a bathroom. So Ralph gets one hour to clean the bathroom. Whereas Slick Willie, the manager says, you know, Willie, you're, you're smart. I'm giving you 45 minutes to clean that bathroom. And Willie freaks out. And Willie says, Ralph, how come Ralph gets an hour? Well, uh, how come I have to do it in 45? And, you know, this is where it gets very difficult because on one hand, someone might come in and say, all janitors should be able to clean that bathroom in 45 minutes. Whereas now Ralph is getting that 15 minute exemption. And it's hard because... Willie is going to be like, it's not fundamentally fair. It's not fundamentally, like if one janitor is given an hour to do the job and I'm only given 45 minutes, then we should all be given an hour. So it's when we start making these like individual differentiations, there's always going to be these people that are complaining and saying, if, if one person is afforded that accommodation, we should all be afforded that accommodation. So yeah. how, how do we bring justice and fairness into this situation? Well, I think that so, you know, when you're dealing with, if you're dealing with a corporation, so we, I mean, these, these like you said, this is, it depends, it depends on what we're dealing with. So let's start with a corporation, for example, because that's like, you know, um, where I would imagine three janitors would be hired at the same time. If you're dealing with a corporation, then I would say that it, it'd be interesting, it'd be strange if they all had the same position. Let's just say it's not one, it's not a senior janitor or a junior janitor or a janitor in trainee or something like that. Just They're all just janitors, right? Simply janitors. Then I'd say that the justice is to the, is to the uniform, not to the man. The work is to the uniform, not to the man. So once they put on that uniform, they're all expected to perform the same tasks at the same, under the same amount of time. There is no favoritism. There is no, um, there is no, um, how you say, uh, or, a, or, a, or a condescension or any, in any way towards any one of them. It's a matter of uniform. So what we're doing is you pay them the same. You make, it doesn't matter if they're black, white, Asian, doesn't matter if they're 
a man or a woman or whatever else in between. The point is simply the uniform gets paid the same and the uniform gets gets given the same task at, within, within a reasonable amount of time. Yeah. All right, we're gonna have some. I'm gonna have some fun with you today. <laughs> I like I, that's a beautiful phrase. The, you know, we all owe our allegiance to the uniform. Okay, manager says everyone has to clean the bathroom in 50 minutes. No matter who you are, 50 minutes. You're the manager, and Ralph comes to you, and his shirt is covered in sweat. He's got tears down his eyes. And I was like, I was working every second. I tried my best. And you were watching Ralph. You knew he didn't break it all. He was scrubbing. He just can't get it done in that 50 minutes. It takes him 65 minutes or whatever. And you see, you see his entire shirt is drenched with sweat. And you knew he wasn't slacking and he gave it his all. He just can't do it in 50, even though the uniform requires the job to be done in 50 minutes. It just, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, takes him 65 minutes. You're the manager. Are you mm -hmm. going to fire Ralph and be like, it has to be done in 50 minutes, no ifs, ands, or buts? Or are you going to be like, for you, Ralph, 65 minutes? What do you do? Yeah, if I'm, if I'm the manager and I have free way to do that, then absolutely, why not giving them extra time? Mm -hmm. But if, I, if there is no free way to do that, if the company's policy is the company's policy, and this is something we follow strictly for specific reasons and guidelines, he has to go. It means that he's not he, the janitorial job is still not for him, which means that his constraints has his constraints have increased. So instead of being a janitor, he needs to find something else. And so it all depends. So we're, we're dealing we're, when we're dealing with when 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 we're dealing with you know um, with humans and especially corporations and all that kind of crap. You know where where there's freedom to be given, there's freedom to be given. I would say fine. That's that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But when there's no freedom to be given, there is no freedom to be given. Like, for example, if you if you were if you were a brilliant police officer, if you were a brilliant trainee of you know police academy students, right? Students in the academy, and you were brilliant at everything else. You're you're really good at what you're about to do, right? But you can't shoot. You just can't shoot. You keep when we're testing you, you keep hitting those boards with the mothers and the babies, right? You, you shoot everything, and your hands all get shaky. Yeah, yeah. Listen, mate. I don't care how nice of a um, sergeant I am or, you know, whoever's in charge there. You're not getting out there with a gun. Sure. <laughs> You're not. Because this is, this, is something, this is something that we know is a requirement. So like I said, of the corporation, this is a requirement. So for example, let's just say, like in a hospital, right? They're turning out patients on a scheduled basis and they need those rooms cleaned ASAP because these are patients. These are people who need immediate care and so forth, right? We need you to do this in less than 40 seconds, less than 40 minutes, like under 40 minutes. If you can do this another 40 minutes, you got yourself a job. If you can't do this another 40 minutes, this is super important. You can't, you can't work here, you know? Nothing personal to you, mate, but it's the, it's, it's the requirements of the job, it's the requirements of the situation. I, I, I hear you on that. And I think, I, I'm, I'll be very honest, I've, as a learner myself, I'm a very slow guy. I've never been, uh, I've never been speedy. So I'm more of the elbow grease kind of learner as opposed to like, yeah, yeah, yeah I get it. Moving, moving forward. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I think we're, yeah, we're both in that same camp. So on one hand, I do have empathy for my Ralphs out there. I have empathy for my slow learners. And there's so many, there's so many layers of complexity to this because the willies, like the slick willies of the world have to come to understand that, hey, 
you are willy and you're quick and Ralph is working. You're Ralph's a hundred percent and you're a hundred percent are two separate things. And Willie actually has to be taught and, and understand that Ralph is not slacking and, you know, playing on his phone. He actually is working. It's just his 100% is different than his 100%. I'm wondering for those who just aren't quick enough, and this is where I think the issue lies, is that I think we have a lot of people in our society that are hardworking, they're diligent, and they work really hard. But our society favors fluid intelligence over crystallized intelligence, hand, you, know, hand, you know, hands down. And I think of like people who work on Wall Street, they may not have a lot of crystallized knowledge. They may not know like a lot about history or economic theory, but they're really quick, like, like, like a five, five, you know, they can do math in their head really quickly. And I'm wondering if we as a society could be a little bit more kinder to people who are just hardworking, but slow. I think this, I think we've actually hit the nail right here is that we think that people who are slow are lazy, but we need to be more forgiving of people who are slow, but also hardworking. And perhaps we need to allow them more exemptions, allowances, and maybe privileges and, 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 you know, things because you have, because I'm, I'm of the belief system in my teaching and, and in life, I evaluate human beings based on their effort and not necessarily their results, which is a very controversial thing. Like most people are not like that. Most people are like, show me the results. I don't care by hook or by crook, whatever, you know, I actually take effort into consideration because I do empathize with people who have tried very hard at something, but just haven't produced stellar results. You can call that a weakness. You can call that an error in my thinking. Is that the right way to go where we become more concerned with effort as opposed to results or in order for us to be functional, we have to only look at the results? Well, I think the results are super important. Absolutely. But I think that effort is actually important as well. It's not as important as results, but effort is important because what you're dealing with when, you, when you're looking at effort, um, you, you're, you're looking at the um, the initiative, you're looking at the productivity, at least the, 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 the drive of the employees, right? You're looking at, because some people may not get it, they may not get it right, but you see that they went through a lot of different processes and they tried all kinds of theories and so forth to get it for you. And if you don't see that, you'll undervalue them. If you don't see that, you'll think that they did nothing. So I would say that both are, both are important. You got to look at both. So I would say there are people who, you know, um, because it gives you a well-rounded view of who you're dealing with. And I think it's important for managers to know, managers to know their, their workers. And it's good for, you know, um, to people over the managers to know them. It's, but we find that that's usually not the case. We don't care for the people that are working beside us or beneath us all of well it's very hard to get in touch or get in it's very hard to get build a relationship with the person who is working above you unless of course they reach down to you right so you can't go around calling the ceo hey let's grab some coffee <laughs> you know but it's it's my point is that it's good it's good if you have people working under you it's good to get to know them it's good to know their strengths and their weaknesses and so because if you're now, this is not something you have to do, right? But if I would say it's good to do because the productivity, the productivity really does hinge on this. If you're giving, if you're giving work to a person, to person A, when person B is absolutely much more suited for it, then you're nuts. You're nuts, you know? 
And if you're given, and if you're giving, you know, um, you can't give, you can't be giving your, you know, research problems uh, to a person who's more of a, you know, hands-on grounds guy, somebody who's out in the streets making deals, talking to people. You don't want to give them the research job. You want someone who likes sitting behind a desk, combing through um, um, books upon books, papers upon papers, and that's like that's where they are. That's 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 their that's the nirvana right there. Um, so it's good to know your employees. It's good to know who you work, who's working for you, your strengths, the weaknesses. It's good to look at. It's good to look at the uh, their effort absolutely because it gives you a good a good understanding of who's who's with you, um, and it's good to look at the results as well. Yes, uh, we're going to close out soon. I think some of the big takeaways from this conversation are like I think that everyone has the free will to put maximum effort in. Are we in agreement about that? We all have the free will to choose to work hard or to be lazy, right? Whether, whether, you're, whether you're the brightest man in the world or a, a little on the, on the duller side, both people, the dull person and the bright person, both have the free will to work really, really, really hard. The natural barrier is going to be the result, right? That's, that's, that's the area of like, the, you have the dull person and the really smart person. They both put in maximum effort, but their results are radically different. The, the bright person, you know, like solved a thousand math equations, whereas the dull person could not solve the first one, even though they were both working just as diligently for an allotted amount of time. We as a society, I think accountability goes in there where we, one, evaluate people based on the effort. But it can't solely just be on the effort because results do matter, right? We can't, we can't be like, well, Ralph also deserves to live in a mansion because he works. Like theoretically, Ralph could put in more effort being a janitor than, um, than some guy puts in being a doctor. Maybe being a doctor just comes really easy to somebody and they don't have to put that much effort in. And technically, Ralph puts in more effort cleaning toilets than someone does being a doctor, that doesn't mean Ralph gets the mansion and the doctor, you know, gets the studio apartment. That's, that's not how we decide things. But when we're thinking about accountability, effort does have to be a part of that metric. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I, I think we made a, a lot of headway here on free will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maximum effort ahead, Kenny. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. This concludes the 165th episode of the Truth Island Podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.